Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, thanks, Lucy, and let me add my welcome. I'm Mike, one of the ministers here, and I'll be speaking on that passage in a series that we're doing on an Old Testament book called Isaiah, and our subtext is uh, captured by a better vision. But let me just say a word about what we're doing after this. Um, Our church has been praying for probably about 18 months for 10 people to be baptised. And the great news is that today is numbers 8, 9 and 10. So the prayer's been answered. Um, We prayed, just looking back, five years ago, the church was very small. We had about 20, 30 people. And we prayed for five families uh, for two years. And then they came. And then we prayed, we outgrew the venue we were meeting in and we prayed for another two years um, for a new venue and, and God opened the door for us to come here. Another church got bigger and moved out. And then we've prayed for these 10 baptisms. So today is the last day we're going to pray that prayer. We move on to something else tomorrow. So it's an encouraging day for us. Everyone's invited. Please stay around and come down and see three people plunged into icy water at the end of November outdoors in a playground in Manchester. And with that in mind, let's just pray again and ask God to speak to us through his word. Would you join me and pray one more time? Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to cast your minds back to the year 410. Uh, The place is Rome. Rome, the center of a global empire, the symbol of security, of a safe city. People had nicknamed it the Eternal City. They thought it would go on forever. It seemed so secure. But in the year 410, Rome was attacked, overcome, and sacked by Goths. Now, you're thinking of Goths. These are people wearing black. They've got black eyeshadow and black hair and probably black fingernail polish, and they're coming in listening to their music. These are not those kind of Goths. Here's a painting of these Goths. They don't have black clothes on. In fact, they've got no clothes on. These are some Goths pulling down a statue in Rome. And I'd just love to know what the caption is of what this guy is saying. I wish I'd brought my underpants. (laughs) But this event of these Goths coming in and destroying Rome sent a shockwave around the whole world. It traumatized people. The one place that seemed really, really safe had fallen. Certainty was gone. And in its place came fear. The world was crumbling. Now, many people actually blamed the Christians for it. Because a lot of people in Rome had become Christians. And so the pagans said, well, you know what? We turned away from the old gods. We followed Jesus. And so the gods are angry. And this is their way of punishing us. So there was a backlash. And the Christians needed to respond. So one man took up his pen. He was an African bishop. His name was Augustine. I'm sure you've heard of him. Augustine of Hippo. Hippo was the place that he lived, not uh, an animal. Uh, And there's a picture of Augustine doing a little wave, and Augustine reflected on the events that had led up to to Rome falling. 
And he wrote a book called The City of God, which is destined to become a great classic. He said, at any one time in the world's history, there are two cities that coexist. They overlap. And these cities are always going on all the time, but they are radically different. One of them is the city of man. The other is the city of God. Now, they aren't literal cities. You can't identify the city of man with Rome or Babylon or Beijing or any city that you don't like. You can't identify the city of God with one particular place. But they are experiences. They are ideas. They are the experience of people living in the world. Augustine says the city of man is life organized with no God in it. Human beings building their lives on themselves. It is building your life on human foundations without God at the heart, without him at the foundation. It is life in this world, arrogantly thinking that we don't need God and that we can be our own Lord and Saviour. That is the city of man. And in the Bible, the poster child of the city of man is called Babel. You can read about it in the early chapters of the Bible. But alongside the city of man is the city of God. The city of God, where people submit their lives to God's rule. And they become fully human. And they flourish because they now know their maker. And they're enabled to be the people that they were made to be. The city of God, where people humbly follow God, or the city of man. And Augustine says, these two cities actually represent two humanities. There's one human species, but they're actually two races. It's two human races. They start right back at the beginning of the Bible with Cain and Abel. Cain represents the city of man. He's all about himself. He believes in God, but it's all about Cain and his efforts and his sacrifice and his thing being the best. And his brother Abel represents the city of God. He humbly gives what he has, and Cain hates Abel and actually kills his brother. So there's two cities, city of man, city of God. So that means that the most important question that we can ask ourselves today is this, where do you live? Where do you live? I once did a, a, a teacher training certificate, and I remember being with a class of 11-year-old and 12-year-old students, and asking them to write a letter. I was an English teacher. And one of them couldn't write out his own address. Where do you live? I'm not asking where, where you live at home. But are you living in the city of God or the city of man today? And it's vital to answer, be able to answer this question. Because what you say about where you live will influence everything about you. It will shape your relationships. It will shape your sexuality and what you do with it. It will shape your decisions, what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on. It will shape the course of your life. In fact, it will actually shape your eternal destiny, how you answer. Are you going to live in the city of God or the city of man? One of those roads ends in heaven. The other one ends in hell. God's city is the only address that will last forever. So God invites us all to pack our bags, leave home, and follow him on a journey to the city of God. So where do you live? Now, because these two cities overlap, as I've already said, and they coexist, and any time they're going on in the same place, how do we know which one we belong to? How do we know? The answer is you have to understand the two cities, you have to understand two loves, and you have to understand two lords. Two cities, two loves, two lords. Two cities. Now, the prophet Isaiah lived 
about eight centuries, 700, 800 BC, before Jesus, he preached in the country that we call Israel, and he was in the southern part where the capital of Jerusalem was, which was known as Judah. And Isaiah gave the people vision. He talks in picture language. He gives vision because he knows that we are captured by vision when we see it. We're captivated by it. And a few weeks back, I gave the example of my friend's father, who's called Jack Haifman. And he had a vision. Now, Jack was a great salesman. He sold tires for the Goodyear Tire Company, and then he set up his own business selling boats. And he got a picture, a framed picture, of a Mercedes-Benz SL Coupe. And he hung the picture above the back door of his house. And every day as he went out to work, he looked at that picture and he said to himself, I'm working for that because when I retire, I'm going to go into the Mercedes dealer, put down cash and drive home in that car. It was a vision that inspired him for the future. A motivating vision. Now Isaiah gives us pictures. We've thought about some of them in the last few weeks at the church. The vision of God's a mountain where his presence is being raised up higher than all the mountains in the world. It's higher than Everest. It's looming behind. It's got snow-capped top. And God's uh, teaching coming out to the whole world and the nations flooding. And they all want to get up and hear what God has to say so they can live in the light of it. The vision of a mountain. There's a vision of God in the temple. Isaiah goes into the temple and he says, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up. He was so big that even just the hem of his robe filled the whole temple. Just the hem would fill this room. How big is the one on that throne? And he sees God in his power and holiness and awesome majesty. We thought about the vision of a child. This child who will come. But somehow this child is going to be called the Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We thought about the vision of a world of peace, a world where the lion can lie down with the lamb, and the lamb will sleep. And we thought about the vision of a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse in the burned down forest. And that shoot ends up fulfilling the hopes of humanity. And the vision that Isaiah gives now in this chapter is of the two cities. The two cities. And our friend Augustine would say, you see, the city of man and the city of God. Look with me at, again at verse 5 and we'll see the city of man. Verse 5. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. The lofty city. Now this city is lofty. and that means two things. It is high up and it is proud. It's high up. In the ancient world, if you want to build a safe place, where do you build it? On a hill or on a mountain. It's secure from its enemies. You've got watchmen. They're on, keeping watch on the walls and they're looking out day and night, for the enemy coming. And if they see somebody from their elevated position, they sound the alarm. They light the beacon fires. Everybody runs into the city. Enormous gates swing shut. Boom! We're safe. When the enemy comes, we're ready. We're above them with bows and arrows, and we can pour boiling oil on their heads. Once the city's locked down, there's security. And that enemy has to decide, do they want to face an expensive siege? But lofty also means proud and haughty. And there's the other side to this city of man. It's a temptation to pride, to self-reliance, the spirit of self-sufficiency that says, we built this city, we built it. I wonder if you've heard this song at a funeral. 
And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets? I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Frank Sinatra's song to himself, which is a favorite of funerals. Now that is the spirit of the city of man. I did it my way, and I have no regrets. But where does it lead when everybody does it their way? When everybody is self-reliant and makes their own rules, when people live for themselves with relentless self-interest, where does it lead? When they come to the end and say, I made no mistakes and I don't need to apologize. I have nothing to say sorry for. What kind of person does that create? It creates a monster. Every dictator, every tyrant, every rapist, every child abuser, every slave trader sings, I did it my way. And you're thinking, well, that's a bit extreme. Well, it is. And I know you're thinking you're not like that. But here's the problem. If everyone's doing it my way, then who are you to judge someone else's path to fulfillment? So the city of man always leads to injustice. It always leads to inequality. It always leads to racism. It always leads to oppression because it's built on self, doing it my way. And according to Isaiah, its destiny is certain destruction. Look what he says in verse 5. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor, See, it's going to be leveled to the ground. There'll be nothing left of it. It'll be trampled down by the very people who it oppressed. But there is another city. It's the city of God. And there it is in verse 1. In fact, they love this city so much they actually start singing about it. The song will be sung. It's a praise song. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter the nation that keeps faith. Why is it so safe? Because it's high up? Because it's well built? No, because it's God's city. It is founded upon a rock that lasts forever. God himself is its foundation, permanent stability. In other words, this city of God is life built on God. Life lived fully for him, relying on God, obeying his voice, trusting him. A very good friend of mine has uh, recently had some hard times in his life. He uh, texted me recently, and I've known this. Uh, he's, he's just deep down uh, sad and struggling. Things to do with two of his daughters, and his father's close to death. And uh, things in life haven't turned out as he wanted, but he's been faithful to God all over many years. And he sent me a text saying, This verse from the Bible has become very precious to me. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The Lamb is Jesus. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so even while he's suffering, he's not spinning out of control. 
And he's in the place of security. He's following Jesus. See, this is the city of God. It's a, a, a city of God is a life built through relying on God over months and years and decades. Following him through the ups and through the downs. What does it look like? It looks pretty unimpressive, to be honest with you. It looks like you have the same struggles as everyone else, and you do. And then, if you're a Christian, you've got a whole load of extra struggles that nobody else has. You've got the struggle of dealing with people at church. I know that's always a joy. You've got the struggle with your own sin. Oh, how I wish I could change. You've got the pull of Christian service on your time, on your affections. You've got the needs of the gospel work pulling on your wallet. And it looks weak. It looks unimpressive. A life built on relying on God will be laughed at. You know, a whole holiness in every generation looks weird. But, Isaiah says, it will last forever. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. The only safe place. The only firm foundation. So back to my question for today. Where do you live? Do you live in the city of man? Or do you live in the city of God? Are you singing my way? Or are you singing his way? Now some of you are thinking, how do I know? How can I tell the difference? I feel so tangled up. And I'm so inconsistent. And if Augustine says that they're all both going on at the same time, well, how do I know? Well, he's, he made a great comment. He said, we've got to probe our hearts. Listen to this. These two cities have been formed by two loves. Two loves. The earthly, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. For one seeks glory from people. But the greater glory of the other is in God. See, the two cities are formed by two loves. And you can see it there in Isaiah's vision. In verse 8, he says, uh, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. Now, there's some passionate language. Your name is what I'm yearning for, desiring. Your renown, your fame. Verse 9, he carries on. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. My aunt and uncle are here today. They uh, were very important uh, uh, in encouraging me to ask a young woman called Melissa out on a date in about 1998. And they basically said, come on, time to get on the bus and ask her out and be pretty brave. And uh, I was fearful and I asked her but I remember those early days of not being able to sleep I was so caught up with thoughts of her soul yearning in the night and in the morning her, my mind was full of her now this is what Isaiah says if you really get to know God if you really get to know how beautiful he is how wonderful his character is how gracious how much he loves you then you'll actually think about him day and night it's a different kind of vision of God it's a love song, song of passion. Who have I got in heaven but you, psalmist says, and the earth has nothing I desire beside you. But not the city of man. Its love is focused on self, self-love. And guess where that leads, verse 10. 
But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. You see, even when they experience grace from God, these people who, who love themselves don't give him any credit. Even when life goes well for them, they think they're responsible and it's, it's down to their own efforts and their own luck. They don't ever acknowledge God, even when conditions are favorable. And therefore, they are lost. They are lost. How many people do you know whose lives on the outside look pretty good? You know, they've got designer clothes. They go to the gym. They keep themselves in shape. They're fun people. They know how to party. They're popular. They're kind of the cool insiders. Maybe they've got money, and they certainly know how to spend it. But you know what? How many of those people, when you get to know them, you discover that on the inside, they're tragically lost. Marriages that are just being held together for the sake of the kids, but they're dead on the inside. People who privately are cracking under the stress of life, stress of work, stress of relationships. Life bowls them at a curveball and they crumble. They're caught up in the pursuit of pleasures that never satisfy. They have no sure foundation. They are lost. See, the difference between these two ways of life, the difference between these two cities, is where you, your love is. You primarily love yourself or do you primarily love God? Loving self will lead you to despair. Loving God will lead you to glory. So friends, are you a lover of God? I don't mean are you a perfect Christian. I know the answer to that question. Not are you a perfect Christian, but do you love him? What happens when you hear the name of Jesus? When you catch a glimpse of him, a fresh glimpse of what he's done for you, who he is. When his name, you hear his name, is his name sweet to you? Let me ask you, for your own sake, to give the love of your heart to God. Believe that he's worth that much. And some of you are probably thinking, how can I do this? I have failed so many times. I've failed so many times. I think I'm destined to fail. Well, the only way to give the love of your heart to God is to go back to Jesus. To go back to him, to do the first things. The New Testament has a letter that's called Hebrews. Some people think it was written to the Hebrews. And it says that Jesus was crucified outside the city walls. Go to him there and identify him as your Lord. Because my final point is that in life there are two there are two loves, but there are also two lords. There's two people you can follow. There are two rivals vying for control of your life. And Isaiah saw this. It's why he starts talking as he does there in verses 13 and 14. He says, Lord our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. They are now dead. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You know, in the history of the people of Israel, they'd had many different lords. Many different lords. First of all, there were the pharaohs. These were great kings of Egypt, rulers of the ancient world, the superpower. But that ended up in slavery, ended up in infanticide, ended actually in attempted genocide, oppression. And then when they escaped from there and they got into the promised land, there were other lords, other nations that would try and dominate them and take them prisoner, take their crops and 
smash their cities up. And then even when they got their own kings, more often than not, they proved to be useless, godless lords. But Isaiah says, those human lords, you know what? They may seem powerful for a while, but they're gone. And then nobody even remembers them. You know, we don't even know the name of the Pharaoh who oppressed the Israelites. We don't know which Pharaoh it was. The Bible doesn't even deign to mention his name. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tells that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing else remains. Around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's a poem by Shelley, talking about the statue of a great king, a pharaoh. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair, but a few hundred years later, what's left? Nothing except the broken statue. Friends, there's only one Lord who is worth following. He's the Lamb, Jesus, and we follow him wherever he goes. There's only one king worth believing. There's only one hero worth adoring. There's only one person in the universe worth all the love of your heart. And when this king came to earth, the city of man showed its true colors. Humanity demonstrated what they would do with God if they could actually get their hands on him. They crucified him. Humanity's truest statement about God was to take him outside the city gates and kill him. How can you give your love to the city of man? How can you suck up to those powers? How can you be comfortable living in that world, the world of self, doing it my way? If you can, you know there's something spiritually wrong. You've got to sort yourself out. So how can we purify our hearts so that they're not contaminated with love for this world, that they're not obsessed with proving ourselves and being the person that we want to be? Well, go to Jesus. Go to him outside the city. Go to Jesus in your mind's eye. Go to the foot of his cross. Look at the king's cross and realize again the love that took him there. Nobody else has ever loved you that much. Here is love. An old hymn says, Vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. That's what Will and Rosie and Martin have come to believe. That's why they want to be baptized today, to identify with that saviour. No love is higher, no love is deeper. He came all the way down to win you. Now follow him wherever he goes. Kneel at his crucified feet and think again on his sacrifice. If you're a Christian here, let me ask you, is there any area in your life now where you're serving another Lord? Is there a place in your life that is loving self or loving sin or this world more than him? Give it up. Kill it. Is there a dark, locked room in your life 
that no one knows about except you. God knows. Open the door, let him flood it with light, and don't go back. Consider everything else rubbish that you may know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, whom to know is life everlasting. Ask him to save you, to save you from yourself. He is strong, he is able, he knows you, and his grace is enough for you. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Thank you.